Okay, welcome to lesson three of our Hebrew study. Last week, we had finished the preamble, the previous week, and we started in verse five of last week. And what the author is doing in chapter one, and starting with verse five, is he's laying out a case as to how Christ is superior to angels. And he's going to quote a lot from the book of Psalms. Now, Hebrews, the entire purpose of Hebrews is to what? What, what is the author trying to do? Show them how much better Christ is than anything else. Than anything else. Yeah. So, what we looked at first is angels. Okay. He's going to go on to prove how Jesus is better than Moses. Aaronic priesthood. The old covenant itself and everything associated with it, the sanctuary, the sacrifice system. The promised land. And finally, Mount Sinai. So in this Comparison to the angels. He cites the Old Testament. And he starts with Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is one of the messianic psalms. In fact, if you're going to be talking to somebody about okay, who is Jesus, you're going to want to know what Psalm 2 is. So Psalm 2 is a big one. So in verse 5 he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So God is speaking to Jesus, God the Son, and saying, you're my son. All these angels are just what? What were the angels to God? Messengers. They're just messengers. That's all they are. But he takes, the author of Hebrews, takes these Old Testament psalms and says, you think these psalms were just about God? God creating the universe, God doing this, God doing that. But you take those and you apply them to Jesus. Jesus created the world. Jesus sustains the world. So what is the argument that the author of Hebrews is making? Or what doctrine is he defending? That they are one and the same. Yep. And Jesus is equal in authority. So where we left off, we looked at Psalm 45, we looked at Psalm 102, but we did not get to do any expository study of this last, the last two verses. So somebody read the last two verses of chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay. So he's quoting there from Psalm 110. Psalm 10 is only seven verses. But yet it is one of the most, if not the most, quoted psalms in the New Testament. So if there were to be a test... And I ask you, what are the two major messianic psalms? I'll be looking for Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. 
In fact, Psalm 110 is quoted or referenced to in the book of Hebrews in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, and 12. It's a very big deal. In fact, one of the commentaries I read said that Hebrews is really an expository teaching on Psalm 110. So because of that, and because of the themes that you see in Psalm 10 are just filled, or, or completely fill all of Hebrews, tonight we're going to look at that psalm. And we're going to look at the major themes that Psalm 110 breaks out. And then I'm going to show you how those themes are replicated in Hebrews. So let's flip back to Psalm 110. And we, might, we will be doing a lot of flipping today through the Bible. Not cartwheels, but flipping through the Bible. And if we don't finish, we don't finish. It's absolutely fine. Alright, so Psalm 110, verse 1. A Psalm of David. Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole, oh, excuse me, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. All right, so the few things I want you to underline, if you underline in your Bible, okay, in verse 1, see where it says, sit at my right hand? Underline right hand. <clears throat> Also notice that um, the enemies are your footstool. You got ruler in verse three. No, excuse me, verse two. You got that rule in the midst of your enemies. And also the word scepter right above it. Verse 4, see what it says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So priest is a theme, Melchizedek is one. Something else. In verse 6, you have, or excuse me, verse 5, you have day of wrath. Then in Psalm 110, verse 6, you have judgment and corpses. All right, so these are some of the words that are going to stand out. Now, what is important to know 
is by the time Jesus came on the scene, everybody accepted within Judaism that Psalm 110 was about the coming Messiah. It was one of those chapters that the Jews would have had memorized. They would have studied over and over and over. And we have non-biblical Jewish writings that confirm that fact. That they were said, Psalm 10 is definitely about the Messiah. And what we're going to look at is a few other verses in the Old Testament where these themes pop up again. And what I want to do is just like in, in Psalm 1 where the author used those passages from Psalm to build the case that Jesus is greater than the angels. I want to show you in the Old Testament and build up the, the case that Jesus, in fulfilling Psalm 110, fulfills a lot of other passages that are related to him. My goal is not to go through this as fast or as quick as I can, so by all means, stop me and ask questions. Especially if you say, hey, what about this verse? All right, I need somebody to volunteer to read Genesis 49, verse 10. I need somebody to read Genesis 14, 18 and 19. Okay. 14, uh, verses 18 and 19. Genesis 49, verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right. So the Jews had an understanding that the Messiah was going to come from the tribe of Judah. All right? Now, when we looked at these things here from Psalm 110, right hand, footstool, rule, priest, scepter, Melchizedek, day of wrath, judgment, and courts, which one did Psalm, or excuse me, Genesis 49:10? which ones can we kind of cross off the list here? Is it also touches on that. Scepter. Okay? Definitely takes care of scepter. This idea of a king holding the staff in his hand that symbolizes I am the supreme authority. All right, go ahead and read Genesis 14, 18, and 19, please. And Melchizedek, king of South Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay. What words do we see there? Priest to Melchizedek. Priest to Melchizedek. All right, so the the Jews understood from that verse, they would have known who Melchizedek was. And when David wrote Psalm 10 and they were reading this, they would have understood that Messiah has something to do with Melchizedek. Right? Shelby, if you would look up Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And Megan, if you would look up Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. 
get yes. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, please. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Okay, hold on. So the image here is Daniel was seeing this incredible vision. He says, I see someone who looks like the Son of Man, and he's coming before the Ancient of Days. Okay, now somebody venture a guess as to whom the Ancient of Days is. It's God. Okay, God the Father. And the Son of Man is approaching him. Okay, continue reading. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Thank you. And yes, I did forget to close the door. Yes. Thank you for shutting the door. All right. All right, so what aspect or what theme from Psalm 110 did the verse she just read check off our list for us? What is this son of man receiving? rule. He's receiving a kingdom, dominion. And how long does this kingdom and dominion last? Everlasting. Everlasting. Right? And that son of man, by again, by the time of Jesus' day, that title, son of man, was strongly associated with the coming Messiah. So when Jesus performs the miracle where the people tear off the roof of the house where he's speaking and they lower the person down, and Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. I say to you, rise up and walk. And he sees the Pharisee standing there, and he says, you're thinking this. By what authority does he do this? He says, well, the Son of Man can do this. And he's, or he, first he said, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. Then he says, you're asking me, how does the Son of Man have authority to forgive sins? He says, what's easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, which nobody can see, there's no visual sign of that, or to say to somebody, rise up and walk. So, so that you may know that a son of man has the authority to do both, he looks at the person who's laying and says, I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. And of course, by invoking that title, son of man, the Pharisees and everybody who heard this happen knew instantly that Christ was taking on a messianic title for himself. Alright, so definitely the rule. That Son of Man is definitely a ruling title, authority, power, dominion, kingdom, all that type of stuff. Alright, and Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And you can stop where it says um, seven weeks. You don't have to read past that. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay. If you have not underlined anointed one in your Bible, you should do that now. Because in the Hebrew, that word anointed one is Messiah. And Greek is nothing more, or excuse me, and Christ is simply the Greek transliteration of Messiah. So the Jews knew from Daniel 9.25 that's where we say the Messiah is coming. And it goes on to give all these numbers, seven weeks, 62 weeks, or 69 weeks plus one. 
And the Jews knew, basically, based on what that stuff meant, to be looking for the Christ. That, that's why there were so many false messiahs around Jesus' time. Because they understood that the Messiah, the anointed one, is coming. And by Jesus' day, they had tied Daniel 7, the Son of Man, this Messiah in Daniel 9. They had tied this individual mentioned in Psalm 110. All of this was wrapped up in the Messiah and whom he is supposed to be. So when Christ starts speaking and he starts quoting Old Testament passages and says, oh, that's me, he's just getting clue after clue as to who he is to everyone that listens. And that's what made the Jews so mad. All right, a few other verses. I'm not going to have you guys look them up, but Micah chapter 5, 2. The prophet Micah is speaking to the city of Bethlehem and saying, from you is going to come someone who's going to rule in Israel. And obviously that's speaking about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So look in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. The Jews also understood because David was the one who wrote Psalm 10 and they knew that David had been given a very specific promise by God. Does anybody remember what the specific promise God gave to David? It has to do with his throne. His throne will be everlasting. God told him in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that from your offspring will come someone who will always sit on the throne. It will never, ever, ever be taken from him. I will be to him the father, he will be to me a son. That was partially fulfilled in the Davidic kings, the, the line of kings, but it was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Because who's the king of Israel right now sitting on the throne in Israel? No one. No one. There is none. So obviously that was not a talking about any human king. It had to be talking about somebody else. That's obviously going to be Jesus. So when Jesus uses son of David and he accepts people calling him son of David, he's saying, okay, I was born in Bethlehem. I'm calling myself the son of David. You all know I'm from the tribe of Judah because genealogy was a really, really big deal back then. I'm calling myself the son of man. I'm taking these messianic titles and I'm claiming them as my own. Everybody's being very, or starting to understand exactly what he is claiming to be. All right, so what did I say? Matthew 21? All right, so Matthew 21 is the triumphal entry. So this is about one week before the crucifixion. So this is when the Jesus walk rides into Jerusalem. He's sitting on the back of a colt. And why did Jesus wear, ride on a colt into Jerusalem? To fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. A very specific prophecy. This, that's actually a true statement. He says, behold, here he comes riding on the, a colt. So Jesus rides in and the people are shouting, Blessed is Jesus, blessed is the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're shouting this over and over. Jesus continues up into the temple where he cleanses the temple a second time, where everybody there is exchanging the money and ripping off the people. And some of the Pharisees see this happening and they get ticked off, not only at what he did in the temple, but because all these people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And they come up to Jesus. 
and look in verse um, I felt like I didn't close my notes starting in verse 9 21 verse 9 and I've already summarized that look in verse 14 and the blind and the lame came to him, Jesus, in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw what wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you not hear these things that they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? And now he's about to quote from the book of Psalms. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. So Jesus says, yes, I hear them saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And to a Jew, son of David meant the coming Messiah. The chief priests are aggravated by what Jesus is doing. They say, don't you hear these people calling you this messianic type title? And he says, yes, and he quotes from Psalms. Out of the mouth of of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. All right, that's in Psalm 8. So flip back to Psalm 8. All right, somebody read verses 1 and 2 for me. Okay, so verse 1, you says, or it says, O Lord, our Lord. That's O Yahweh, our Master. So this psalm, Psalm 8, is a praise to Jehovah God. It says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouth of babes and infants, which is where Jesus was quoting from. But notice what this says here. It doesn't say you have prepared praise. What does it say? You have established strength. Now, why, when Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, does he commit such a major mistake like that? Because it seemed like he just completely misquoted that scripture. Does anybody know a possible explanation? for why Jesus' quote of the Old Testament would be different from the Old Testament. Because um, he's quoting from... He's, is he saying Greek or is he saying Hebrew? He's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he quotes from the Septuagint. That is what the general populace would have had access to. That is what they would have read. That is what they would have been familiar with. Jesus quotes the Septuagint. The author of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint. What was the um, name of the text that most of our modern English translations got their Old Testament from? The Masoretic text. So Jesus is quoting it. In fact, 
in my ESV study Bible, it actually has a note about this verse. It says, the Greek translation, this is talking about Psalm 8-2, the Greek translation of the Septuagint, quoted in Matthew 21-16, rightly interprets strength as, quote, strength attributed to God in song, end quote, or praise. So it says, you've established his strength, that instead of established, it's prepared, instead of the word strength, it's praise. I just wanted to show you that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, and he's quoting from the Septuagint. So that's why you will see differences in, the, in what Jesus says and what the Old Testament says, as far as word-for-word -word comparison. This is something that the Jehovah's Witness, who knocks on your door, they know all of this stuff, and they know it extremely well. And if you aren't aware of this, they will tie you up in knots, pointing stuff like this out to you. So I tell this not so that you have less confidence that the Bible you have is authentic and a good translation and completely trustworthy and complete and everything you need for salvation. It's I just want to show you that the, the art or the science of translating the Bible, it's, there's going to be differences. And as I mentioned last week, those differences are not very significant. And you can see how the word established and the word prepared are similar. Strength and praise, that is where the Masoretic text just did not do a good job of translating. And there's really no way around that. So when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your Bible and they start pointing out all these quote-unquote errors in your Bible, what did I say? Did I say knock on the Bible? When they knock on the door and they show you in their translation of the Bible, sorry, thank you, knock on the Bible, you know what they're going to do. You, you already know the, the tactics they're going to use to trip you up. All right, so let's, so Jesus takes that verse and says, all these children singing to me, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David, they are fulfilling the prophecy from Psalm 8. Who are the children and infants in Psalm 8 praising and worshiping? Yeah. Yahweh. So yet again, what is Jesus claiming about himself by simply quoting Psalm 8 2? I'm God. I'm Yahweh. And so back in Matthew 21, now that's what we finished that. Now, Let's go to Matthew 22. Anybody have any questions so far? I'm not saying your Bible is horrible and it's a bad translation. I just want you to see that when people are translating it, they have different interpretations of particular words. All right, so Matthew 22. So it's not going to be too long after the triumphal entry. We are going to start in verse 41. Matthew 22, verse 41. So by this time, Jesus has already used Son of Man for himself. He's already used Son of David and accepted the praise and the worship of these people. 
and we still have not crossed out right hand, footstool, day of wrath, judgment, and corpses. But we're going to. All right, so Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So when he says, What do you think about the Messiah? He's making reference to Daniel chapter 9. Whose son is he? Well, that goes all the way back to 2 Samuel. So it makes sense when the Pharisees just immediately say, He's the son of David. So again, the Pharisees knew from Psalm 2, Psalm 110, they, they knew from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. So now Jesus says, or he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him the Messiah Lord, or Kyrios, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So he just quoted from Psalm 110. Remember I said Psalm 10 is one of those very, very, very important chapters. One of those that is worthy of our time and study. So Jesus sees the Pharisees. He asks them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, that's a very loaded question. So they just they answer the last part. Whose son is he? Boom, son of David. So Jesus says, now, if that is true, if he is a son of David, then why does David himself, in Psalm 110, say this? And in Greek, it's Kyrios said to my Kyrios. But in Hebrews, it's Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And listen to what Jesus, the question he says. If then... David calls the Messiah Kyrios. How then is the Messiah the son of David? Why would David call his own son Master, Lord, Kyrios? The king doesn't call his son that. The king dies and then the son inherits the throne. So Jesus is pointing out here all that you think you know about the Messiah not exactly right. He is a descendant of David, yes, but he is far greater and superior because David himself calls his own quote-unquote son Master Lord Kyrios. And it doesn't really tell us anything that the Pharisees say that. But listen to this last sentence. And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So somehow Jesus invoking Psalm 110 and asking them the question he did made them not want to answer him and made them scared to ever ask him any more questions about that topic again. So we need to understand why was that such a gut punch of a question to them. Here's why. As already mentioned, this psalm had been well established as a messianic psalm. From almost the moment it was written, people knew, okay, this is about someone greater than David himself because of this whole, you're a priest too. Because what could David not be? He could not be a priest. That's what got Saul kicked out of the king, the final straw. 
You cannot be king anymore, Saul, because you executed a sacrifice in a way that only a priest should have done. So this Lord that Yahweh is speaking to in Psalm 110, who's a descendant of David, is someone who's vastly greater and more important than King David ever was. David's kind of a big deal to the Jews. So when Jesus says what he did after claiming to be the descendant of David and the son of man, the Jews knew this passage well enough to not get into that with him because he was making even more claims to divinity. They understood exactly the danger of debating Jesus on this passage of scripture here, Psalm 110, and they did not want to do it because Jesus was in a very public place when this was happening. Any questions about that? All right. It's not the last time this verse pops up. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. I can't. Because yeah. he quote, right hand, he quoted footstool. All right, Acts chapter 2. What is Acts chapter 2 about? Does anybody know before they get there and read the title? Pentecost. Good job. You should bring candy and toss it to people. Yes. Oh, help me. I can actually bring it. <laughs> you know what? If you can remind me. Yeah, yeah. All right, so Acts chapter 2. This is Pentecost. This is the Holy Spirit has descended upon the disciples, and Peter stands up, and he's going to give this incredible sermon to a bunch of Jews who are around there to hear this. And we're going to look in, um, starting in verse 34. Now, the background of this, Jesus has already ripped into the crowd, and he's quoted several passages from the Old Testament, including Psalms, about how Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. And he said, basically, you should have known this. Jesus came before you. You saw him. You saw the miracles, and yet all of you people still crucified him. So the people Peter is speaking to are the very ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You people did this. You knew him. You murdered him. You crucified him. This is all your fault, basically, is what he said. So look in verse uh, 34. So quoting some more Old Testament. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David himself says this. The Lord said to my Lord, or Yahweh said to my Kyrios, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him, Jesus, both Kyrios and Christ, or the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Psalm 110 pops up all over the place incredibly important. Very, very important. Jesus quotes it in references to himself. Peter quotes it when he's using Old Testament scripture to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies that all good Jews would have known. And, and he uses it in a very dramatic effect. Alright, now we haven't crossed off day of wrath, judgment, or corpses yet. And all of these were also mentioned. So basically everything was crossed off except these last three in the first four verses of Psalm 110. 
So where's all this the day of his wrath, this judgment, this filling the nations with corpses come from, and all the wicked, pretty cool sounding stuff. All right, we'll end here. Turn to Psalm 19, uh, Revelation 19. Is everybody with me so far? You're allowed to say no, please say it again. Okay. So Psalm 19, let's look in verse 11. So I, I'm telling, I'm about to say that Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21 are going to be the final half of Psalm 110. This day of wrath, judgment, and filling nations with corpses. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Well, now we can cross off this judgment thing. This rider on the right horse is coming to make war and bring judgment. His eyes are like the flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, when I, he says his name is the Word of God, where does your mind go? To John 1.1. 1, 1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So is this is obviously the return of whom? Okay, this is the return of Jesus. And is Jesus coming back, and I've used this before and I like it, is Jesus coming back as a peace-loving hippie wearing flip-flops? Okay, no. Jesus is coming back bringing judgment. And would you not say that this pretty much sounds like he's coming with wrath? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that, that what I just read is a very good description of a day of wrath. His robe is dipped in blood. I mean, that, that's a pretty violent image. Alright, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And this is one of those verses that might be pretty cool in a tombstone one day. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. What does that sound like to you? A bunch of what? A bunch of corpses. So all of this has been to point out that when the author of Hebrews, in the next to the last verse of chapter 1, says Psalm 110 is about Jesus. He's not telling, he's not bringing anything new to the table here. Jesus claimed it about himself, and Peter said this was about Jesus 
back in Pentecost, which had been about 30 years before this was written, give or take. He's simply reiterating what has already been spoken of multiple times. And Psalm 110, and we know this through extra-biblical writing, was well-known and established in the Jewish community as a messianic psalm. And as already pointed out, it's one of the most, if not the most, quoted psalm in the New Testament. So, Psalm 110 and Psalm 12, I would argue, are the two most important psalms you need to know as, as to pertaining to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Next week, we will start chapter 2. And verse 14, as a side note, he just goes back to saying, and angels are still just messengers. So Jesus is super awesome, and angels are just messengers. All right, does anyone have any questions over what we covered? Because I said a lot of words. And apparently I said stupid things like, Jehovah's Witness is knock on your Bible. They might knock on your Bible. You don't have the right one, but they do, by the way. And we'll get it to you for free. No questions? All right. In that case, I will see you next week.